We are in the book of Daniel from the Bible's Old Testament, and we are going into part four, I think it is today. I like to speak of Daniel as future hope that is found in the past. Daniel is one of the most, if not really the most tied with Genesis in terms of how badly it is criticized by modern uh, biblical scholarship. You are talking about a book that, I mean, the, the date, the timing, the history, the people, the places, the language, the structure, everything is dissected and criticized. And I'll show you an example of that today as we work our way through chapter four and five of the book of Daniel. And it's, it's criticized, you'll see over the next few weeks, because it's so specific about things related to the future. And specifically, uh, the, the, the conquests of Alexander the Great and what led to um, the Seleucids and the attack on Jerusalem and the, the military conquest there that took place uh, 3rd century BC, 2nd century BC. And it's so spot on, especially when you get into Daniel 8 and Daniel 9, I think it is, that the scholars today, they say there's no way, no way, no way. I mean, even names Greece. There's no way, no way, no way that this guy could have written this book in the 6th century BC, which is apparently the context of it. It's impossible because he's too specific. He's too accurate, especially about the Greeks and Alexander the Great and so on. So it's impossible. This was written just to encourage the people of that time, but it's got a lot of hocus pocus in it. It's got a lot of inaccuracies in it. And it's so obvious to us because we're so smart in the modern age. Um, I, I'm not going to burn time trying to refute all of their attacks on Daniel. Uh, suffice to say that there are many, but I will teach it the, the straight way that it's presented for me. The authority that we have on whether or not Daniel is really Daniel is Jesus himself. So for me, if Jesus himself accepted this book and accepted its author and accepted it as being inspired, that's good enough for me. So I'll take my cues from him rather than the modern scholars. But if you've been following along with us through the book of Daniel, uh, and even if you know something about it and you haven't read it in a while, you've got the exiles in Babylon. And we focus typically on four of them because the rest of them are mentioned very, very much. And the four of them that we see in exile in Babylon are who? You can speak Babylonian or you can speak Hebrew. Tell me the four names. Meshach, good, Babylonian. Shadrach, good, Babylonian. Abednego, Babylonian. Daniel, good, that's Hebrew, yeah. <laughs> and you got uh, Azariah and uh, Hananiah and uh, Mishael, right? And da Daniel's name, they changed his name in Babylonian to what? Belteshazzar. That's his Babylonian name. So anyway, these, these are amongst the captives who were exiled into Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar comes in there with the Babylonians, destroys the temple, burns it, destroys the city, and exiles them hundreds of miles away into Babylon. And so we've been looking at how they behave 
how uh, the leadership there in Babylon behaves toward them, how they behave back, and we've seen some interesting things. If you remember, it starts, or really starts with the, the, the four boys saying, we're not going to eat the food that the king offers us, the royal food. This, in our view, defiles our faith, and we are not going to do that. You remember that in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And the dream of the, of the magnificent uh, statue that's made of the different elements, right? You remember you've got a gold head, and you've got the silver torso and arms, and you've got... Uh, what was it, a, a bronze uh, abdomen, and then you've got iron legs, and then you've got feet that are partly iron and partly clay. And then you have a big stone that's cut out of the rock. Uh, no one's cutting it. It's not by human hands. And the stone crushes the statue to smithereens, to dust, and the stone overtakes the whole picture. Remember? And, and the king... He, he, he wants his interpreters and his magicians to actually tell him what the dream is and then interpret it, which is impossible. But of course, Daniel, filled with the power of the Spirit, is able to do this. He's able to interpret it. And he says, you know, what's being shown to you here is a succession of kings and kingdoms that are going to come and go and by the way, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So if he's using his head, he knows that he's the first to go. Because then comes the silver, and then comes the bronze, and then comes the iron. But he doesn't really, I don't know, he doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't, doesn't seem to click with him. And what does he do in the next chapter? He proceeds to build a 90-foot statue of gold, 90, that's three times probably the height of this ceiling, 90 feet by 9 feet wide of gold, and what does he say? When the music plays, you have to bow down and worship the statue, and we saw last week, the, we've got the three Hebrew boys, probably young men at this point, Daniel seems to be out of the picture as he's been promoted to some sort of high standing in the kingdom, and they say, no, we're not going to worship your statue, and the king, enraged, designs this, this furnace and cranks up the heat and throws them in there, and he sees the fourth man in the fiery furnace protecting these three other men, and they come out alive not even a hair on their head is singed by the fire. And in typical Nebuchadnezzar form, he says, oh, wow, this is fantastic. This God, you know, he's the revealer of mysteries. He, re he interpreted my dream. And look what he did for these boys who are in prison, he res who are in the fire. He, he stood with them. He rescued them. He sent his angel. So at the end of the chapter, he kind of makes a decree. And he says, you know, the, 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 this is the God of gods. And uh, he, he kind of makes a political uh, statement about this God. But the question as we move into chapter 4 and chapter 5 is, is Nebuchadnezzar changed by what he saw? 
Is he changed by that picture of that statue? Is he changed by the miracle that he saw of these boys being preserved in this fiery furnace where others died just trying to throw them into the furnace? Others were killed just doing that. Is the king changed by what he saw? What do you think? How many say yes? I don't see many. How many say no? Oh boy, the decidedly no, you think. And, and I think you're quite right. I mean, he seems to recognize the power of God. He seems to acknowledge he is the, the revealer of mysteries. He seems to acknowledge he's the one who saves and delivers, but he doesn't seem to be changed by this God. So the end of uh, chapter 3 he says, well, praise be to the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He sent his angel. He rescued his servants. They trusted in him, and they defied the king's command. That's him talking about himself. And were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship, uh, uh, rather than serve or worship any other God except their own. Therefore, I decree. He likes decrees, this king. I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if they say anything against that God, here's his itchy trigger finger, be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. So anybody speaks a word against their God, they're going to be executed, for no other God can save this way. But is he changed himself? No, he's not changed. And he promotes Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego a second time in the province of Babylon, and the chapter ends. And it is precisely this point that he is unchanged that I want to speak to you about today. And the title of our message is The Humiliation of the Kings. There's two of them you're going to see somewhat quickly. Chapter 4 of Daniel starts with Nebuchadnezzar writing. He is the author here, who we are to listen to for a chunk of the chapter, and he is addressing people in the beginning of chapter 4, and he wants to talk about this God. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders, and his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Wow, he's certainly giving lip service to God, but again, is he changed? I don't think so. And he writes and continues in this little sort of soliloquy, and he says, I had a dream. I was in my palace, I was contented, I was prosperous, and I had a dream again, and the dream made me afraid. I was lying in bed, and I saw these images and these visions that passed through my mind, and they terrified me. And so, in typical fashion, he asks all of his, his entourage, his astrologers and his diviners and his enchanters to interpret this dream, and they all seem to be dissatisfactory uh, to him. And then in verse 8, chapter 4, finally Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. 
He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the gods is in him. And I told him, chief of the uh, magicians, Belteshazzar, I know the spirit of the gods is in you. You see how responsive he is to acknowledge the power of God. He refuses to relinquish his pride, his pride. And so God is going to humiliate this man in this chapter. And he says, I've got this vision and I saw this thing and he describes it. And he says, I saw an enormous tree in the middle of the land as enormously high what I saw. I'm just going to put a picture of a tree. I'm sure it didn't really look like that, but you get the picture. And it stood in the middle of the land. It was enormously high. It grew strong and large. The top of it touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. And its leaves were beautiful. And its fruit was abundant. And the food was on it. And underneath, the animals found shelter. The birds lived in its branches. Every creature was fed. And as I was looking and in this vision, there was some kind of a messenger, some kind of an angel that came down from heaven and it calls out in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit and let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and in the grass of the field. And let him be drenched, the hymn we don't know who it is yet, let him be drenched in the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times, or that means years, seven years pass. This is the decision announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know, verse 17, that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes, and he sets them sets over them the lowliest of people. And Nebuchadnezzar says, this is the dream that I had, and now I'm asking you, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, because you are the best in the business when it comes to interpreting these kinds of things. And it's interesting that Daniel is, is bothered by this vision. He's bothered by this dream. It says he's perplexed. It says his thoughts terrified him. And the king says, don't let the dream escape you. I want to know what it means and so on. And so he answers and he gives him the interpretation and it's not a pleasant interpretation. And he says, if only it applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, I'm going to tell you about the tree. The tree which grew large and strong and touching the top of the sky and feeds everyone and covers everything and provides shelter and food and all of that, this tree that became so strong, you, you, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. 
and you saw an angel come and, and cut it and bind the stump in bronze and iron. You saw that and it said, let him be drenched in the dew of heaven. Let him live with wild animals. Let him lose his mind for seven years. This is the decree, king. It is against you. This is going to happen to you. You will be driven away from people. You will live with animals. You will eat grass like an ox. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven for seven years until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign. Remember, he has a pride problem. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump and its roots means that it will be restored to you. Your kingdom will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So you better accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. And that way your prosperity will continue. Well, it doesn't seem like the king has taken the advice because we see a year later he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, quite majestic, and he says to himself, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. My, that is a proud man. Imagine, I mean, he sees a vision from God about his era of leadership and successive leadership kingdoms and so on in the, in the vision. This, as we learned, is what's called an apocalypse. Apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world in the, in the language of the Bible. It means to unveil something. It means to remove the blockage. So God reveals, shows him, apocalypses him, the future. And he is unresponsive to God. God shows him his power in rescuing the three young men in the fiery furnace. And he is unresponsive and his pride is not cracked even by that. And now he has a dream that is a warning of what will happen. It's coming from the chief interpreter, the guy who always gets it right, Daniel, and he apparently ignores it. A year passes, he makes this arrogant statement. The moment that he says it, a voice comes from heaven and says, your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and live with the animals and so on. And the whole thing comes true. Bang, just like that. Immediately, what had said was been fulfilled, had been fulfilled in verse 33. And at the end of the time, and this is where the chapter ends, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven. 
Just as, just as Daniel had said that the dream meant, and my sanity was restored, then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And he makes a grandiose statement, you know, his dominion is an eternal dominion, and so on. He does as he pleases, and so on. And my sanity was restored, and honor and splendor was returned to me. And he, he recounts the whole thing, and he seems quite happy. And this is how the chapter ends. Now I praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I still don't believe that he was truly submissive to God even in his last this is the last we hear of him in the book of Daniel, and it's sort of his, his final words. I still don't believe that this man in his heart of hearts surrendered fully and submitted his life to God. He was humiliated by God. He was put down by God. He realized that God is able to humble the proud, but was he truly submissive and converted, if you will, to God? I don't think so. And then we jump into Daniel chapter 5 and look at this second king who God is about to humiliate. And the, this is the curious chapter because the, the, the book jumps ahead several decades in time without warning. So it jumps to King Belshazzar giving a great banquet for a thousand of his people. And we, on this side of time, we say, well, who is King Belshazzar? We're just looking at King Nebuchadnezzar and this bizarre dream and how God humiliates this man. It's his lesson in bringing down the proud, I suppose. But who is this King Belshazzar? And this is the famous, famous story of the handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar, here in this, in this narrative, this is 539 B.C., and the kingdom of the Babylonians is about to be overtaken. In fact, it's going to be overtaken this night here that's portrayed in this story. Uh, people have the date, the summer of the year 539 B.C., when the Medes and the Persians would overtake the Babylonians. It happens right here. Remember the statue. You have the head of gold, then you have the chest and arms of silver. That's the Medes and the Persians who overtake the Babylonians. Here you have King Belshazzar, who seems to be related to Nebuchadnezzar by the history books and the archaeology. We can see that this is probably the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar by a woman who marries into the family. It's complicated, and this is why the book, one of the reasons why the book is attacked, you will see Daniel 5 referred to Belshazzar as Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's a very loose use of the word son. Technically, it would be his grandson by a woman who married into the family and so on. It's complicated. In any case, the point of the story is this king has the gall to have this 
big party. It's like a debauchery party with alcohol, a mass with a thousand people, lots of drinking, all these wives and concubines and so on. Big wild party that's happening here on the eve of destruction. It's like this king is so aloof to the fact that he is going to die that very night. Throws this huge, huge party. And then he has the gall to go and order that, they, that, that his workers uh, uh, retrieve the articles of gold from the temple that they looted in Jerusalem. You'll recall when Nebuchadnezzar attacked the city, he takes the stuff out of the temple. All of the sacred and sanctified articles of gold and all that, the candelabra, all of these things, he takes them and steals them and brings them into his kingdom. And here you have this king, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and he says, I want all those articles and we're going to use them to drink alcohol in this wild party. I mean, talk about a misuse of what those articles were intended for. And they're worshiping all these other gods at the same time. Verse 4 of Daniel 5, they drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver, of wood and bronze and iron and stone. And they're having this wild party. And they've got this stuff from the temple in Jerusalem that they're using for this party. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a, it's now such a famous saying, you're going to have the handwriting on the wall. And there's going to be a hand, a hand, this is the way that it's written, comes out of nowhere and starts writing on the plaster of the wall. Uh, maybe it looks something like this. There. We've even got some sound. If Omar's in the room, we got some cool sound with it. Anyway, it looks something like this, maybe. And this is the way that the story is told. You've got a hand writing. The king is watching this as it's happening, and his knees start knocking. He is terrified by what he sees. His face turns pale. He's frightened. He calls the people in. He says, what's going on? What does this say? Interestingly enough, it's written in Aramaic. They all spoke Aramaic. They would seem to understand how to read it. Some say it might have been in a little bit of a cryptic form, and this is why it was difficult to understand or difficult to interpret. And he brings people in to try and understand what in the world is happening here with this hand, this writing on the wall. What's it say? What does it mean? The queen mother in verse 10, this is probably the woman who married into the family, might be the, the, the mother of Belshazzar here, the king. Uh, she hears uh, these voices. She comes into the banquet hall. She tries to bring order, and she says, don't be so afraid. Don't look so pale. She could be talking to her son there. We're not real sure who this woman is. But she says, there's a guy in the kingdom. He's a guy who Nebuchadnezzar used a few times to interpret dreams and so on. Bring him in, and he's going to figure this one out. He's got a keen mind. He's got knowledge. He's got understanding. He's going to interpret this dream. He's going to tell you or this, this thing on the wall that just happened. So Daniel comes in, and he stands before the king, and 
The king interrogates him a little bit and says, I can't, no one can explain what this means. I've heard you're really good at this and so on. And hey, if you get it right, I'm going to reward you. I'll give you a purple gown. I'll give you a gold chain. And you'll be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The reason probably why it says third is because uh, you have Belshazzar and Belshazzar's father might have been a co-regent at the same time. His name was Nabonidus, I think it was. And so if, if uh, Daniel gets it right, he'll be number three. Interesting to say the third highest ruler. It kind of is a tip-off as to the history there. Anyway, Daniel answers the king, and he says, I don't want any of your gifts. I don't want any of your stuff. I'm going to tell you what it means. You're in big, big trouble, is basically what he's going to say. He says, you know, your father, and again, technically, this is his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he was great and fantastic and everything, and uh, he had such a high position. Everybody was afraid of him and so on. He, anything he did, he wanted. He's filled with power. But you know what? Verse 20, his heart became arrogant. There it is, this mention of this pride, and hardened with pride. He was deposed he was stripped of his glory. He's driven away from the people. He's given the mind of an animal seven years until he finally humbles himself before God. But you, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You're drinking from his goblets from his temple. You and your wives and your concubines are using these things for this purpose and worshiping all these other gods who can't see or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, that's what the hand is that's writing on the wall. And here's the inscription in the Aramaic, Mene Mene Tekel Parson. And here's what it means. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. They, they take Daniel at Belshazzar's command and they clothe him in purple and they give him a gold chain. He doesn't want it, but they give it to him and they say, okay, you're, this that makes perfect sense. You're now the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. We know this from the non-Hebrew history books, 539 BC. This is when the reign of the Babylonians ceased in that particular night at that particular event. King number two, humiliated, uh, just like his grandfather was. Now, this, both of these chapters, this is an illustration of something. And this is the, the point that Daniel wants to get across, the point of the, of, the, uh, of the author here, is that God is going to humble the proud. 
and the arrogance and the pride of these two leaders God dealt with, no matter what they seem to see, especially Nebuchadnezzar, no sense of humility before God until he was forced and his grandson apparently even worse than him. And the lesson here is a lesson about pride. And I want to just spend a couple of minutes as we finish talking to you about this because what I see in the modern culture and in the modern church is that we have lost the uh, awareness of how vicious pride is both in the life of the non-Christian person and the life of the Christian person and the devastating effects of pride in people's lives. We don't seem to see the impact of it, and this story is very good at illustrating this for us. We seem to be focused on other things and at times blind to our own pride, both as a culture and even the, the church at large sometimes succumbs to this without seeing that it's really happening. And the, uh, give you some basic expressions of pride that you need to watch out for that kind of stem out of this story. And this is the biggest one. The biggest one, and this is the biggest deception, folk, your, your co-workers, your schoolmates, your friends, some of you, your own family, very nice people, very kind, very respectful, very righteous in many ways by our own cultural standards and norms, and here's what they say. That's good for you. That's good that you go to church. That's good that you believe in Jesus. That's good that you're a Christian. That's good you were baptized. Oh, that's so neat. That, that's great to hear. That's, well, you're, you know, that's great you go to church and all that. But respectfully, I don't need God. You may need God. You have this problem and this issue. You know, I saw this in your life, and your life was spinning out of control, and you got religion, and it's all cleaned up your life, and it's so good for you. I'm so happy for you. But I don't need your God. I don't. I'm doing just fine on my own. I have my own thing in my own way, and that's good for you, but I don't need God. Now, that may sound like a very minor thing to you and me, but to God, it is the biggest affront to him and to his heart and to his nature that a person can ever say. The creator of that person turning uh, uh, and that person turning to their creator and saying, I don't need your God. I don't even know if your God exists. And to be honest, I'm not even sure it's like a priority in my life. Maybe for you, that's good, but not for me. This is the biggest affront to God, even though it sounds so pleasant and it sounds so respectful, because he holds their life in his very hand, and they're using the free will that they have been given to say, I don't want my creator in my life. He's not even a priority, or it, or he, or she, or who cares. I have other things to worry about. I have my own life to live that's good for you. This is the biggest affront to God. You see it in chapter 4 and verse 30. 
You see it in chapter 5 and verse 22 in both of these kings standing there in their arrogance. And this drives God to a point where he is going to push the button of judgment. Listen carefully to me in what I'm about to say here because we happen to be in what the culture designates as Pride Month. Yes? We talked about this last week a little bit. And I told you, pick your battles. Pick your battles because they're likely going to pick you anyway. But you need to pick your battles. And we talked a little bit about this particular battle in the culture wars right now. Let me explain something to you folks. If you are going to look at the scripture as the inspired word of God, and you look at it and you say, what I want to know about life and the world and so on is in this book. Let me tell you, folk, that this book spends a whole lot more time talking about pride and arrogance than it does about LGBTQ. A lot more. And it's very ironic to me that, you know, we use this title, Pride, in our culture now to, to talk about all this, and far be it for anyone to speak a word of non-affirmation on this. Uh, I need to tell you, I got a, a phone call and a text message from a person on Monday morning. And the, the person uh, said, I'm at your church. What time's your service? I said, well, it's at 1030, and you got the wrong day. <laughs> and he said, oh, what day is it today? I said, well, it's Monday. <laughs> I said, well, we meet on Sunday, you know, at 1030. So, you know, you, you're free to join us. And he said, oh, okay, I got the wrong day, and by the way, I'm bisexual. And I, okay, well, uh, I did, didn't, wasn't asking, you know, I didn't say that, but that's what's going through my mind, you know, and uh, I, I said, well, you're welcome to attend, or Sunday morning, 1030. So we, you know, it was a cordial conversation, we hung up the phone, and the individual then sent me a text message with their photo. And the, 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 the man said, he said, well, I'm bisexual, but I'm cisgender. And, uh, okay, I mean, and obviously by the photo, you know, he, it was very clear. He was trying to make that very clear. I think he was also in the whole thing of cross-dressing as well. So he definitely, you know, stuck out by this picture. And I could tell that the individual was wanting to know my position on this. And so I responded back and I said, you're welcome to attend, you're welcome to come to our church, but I just need to tell you, just being honest and upfront, that I believe that the scripture holds a non-affirming position toward this. So we don't bash people, we don't condemn people, but we do believe that the scripture holds a non-affirming position toward this. Well, the conversation ended fairly quickly after that. So I thought you were affirming. So, folk, lest you think that, that you know, I'm, uh, Pastor Joe is affirming. No, no, he's not. But let me tell you, folks, when you inspect the pages of the Scripture, it's a lot more concerned with pride than it is with that thing. The culture has put a crosshair and a bullseye on this, and it becomes the center of attention for the culture, and no one dare speak a word against it. I mention it again for you because there are those of you in the sound of my voice and even online, and it's affecting your lives and your family's lives. Your grandkids don't know what sex they are anymore. You can't say anything. Your kids are preaching this stuff to them, and you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, and I, get, I totally understand that, as I said last week. 
week, but the scripture spends so much more time talking about pride than it does about this. Even Ezekiel folk, the Old Testament hardline prophet Ezekiel, this is what he says about this thing, referring to Sodom folks. Sodom, remember the old city that was wiped out by the fire, Sodom and Gomorrah? We get the word sodomy in the modern culture from that city, and it has this reputation that has to do with homosexuality. There I said it. You know what Ezekiel says about this? He says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. He's lambasting Jerusalem for their sin, and he calls Sodom their sister, using figurative language here. He says, I'm going to tell you what their sin was. She and her daughters were arrogant. That's what he says, the first thing. They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. The detestable things may be the homosexuality thing. At the bottom of his list, Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. What is it that irritates God to his heart? It's this arrogance. It's this pride that people have, saying that they don't need him. They will do things their own way. We, no thanks, but no thanks if you even exist. I don't care. And this is an affront to God. You say, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm a Christian and so on. I've seen it from the believer as well, this pride. And we mentioned it in communion when people say, well, I know Jesus and I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. How can you say you know Jesus and need Jesus, but you don't need his body? Christianity was never intended to be a one-man show. It was never intended to be a Lone Ranger operation. You know what happens when you isolate yourself from the body of Christ, from some sort of regular gathering of believers of some sort, one or another, and you become independent and you declare yourself as not needing the body of Christ. You know what happens? Your doctrine starts to change. Your life starts to go off the tracks and off the rails, and you become unaccountable. You become friends, and this kind of Christian surrounding and Christian gathering is unnecessary for you. Folks, this is what happens to pastors, pastors who pastor churches and become completely isolated and cut off from any sense of accountability and they're in the church and pastor a church and what happens to them they fall morally story after story after story we see this in the news what's the common denominator they isolate themselves and they become in a sense arrogant even pastors of churches can succumb to this, and Christians too in the in the pews in front of uh, it, it, right where you sit. Just common lay people, folks. You don't have to be in pastoral ministry or vocation. When people start to get this attitude that God owes them something. I deserve such and such from God. This was Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. You've got to give me the meaning of this. Somebody knows the meaning. God, The gods owe me the meaning. They have to explain this to me. So this is a transactional thing. God owes me. It's a transaction. I believe in him. And so he has to give me stuff. Uh, no, he doesn't. He's not obligated to give you anything. In fact, what he gave you, you didn't deserve. We call that mercy. 
The cross is a picture of mercy. God gives you salvation that you didn't deserve. Folk, we can't get too full of ourselves and start thinking, oh, well, God now owes me this, and God now owes me this. Well, I confess this scripture, and I pray this prayer, and I come to church every Sunday, and I serve, and I tithe, and I do all those things, and now God owes me. Now, folks, you know what that is? It's arrogance. And we have to get to a place where the humility in our hearts is fresh before God. Fresh before God. Where you say, God, I come before you and I need you and I surrender myself to you on a daily basis. The culture will preach pride to you. It will pump you filled with messages about pride. And I'm not talking about LGBTQ pride. I'm talking about Bible pride. It will pump you with this thing of you're something special. Folks, remember, he's something special. And by grace, we get to serve him. And by grace, we can be called his children. Amen. If the musicians would come and we'll finish up. I know it's a, you know, it's a peculiar message, but this is the message of Daniel. This is the way that it comes across. Wait till you see what's coming in the, in the future chapters. And now you're going to see why the book is so criticized. I mean, he gets in people's face. He gets in people's business with what's in this book. But this is what, this is what God would say to us, folks. I think as a church, and I think as a culture at large, what we need to watch out for above everything else, all the other stuff is accessories, above everything else, it's pride. It's that pride and that arrogance that blocks us from a healthy walk with God. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for uh, this, this old, old story confusing as it may be uh, and, and uh, unusual to us. The same old message. Lord, teach us to humble ourselves before you. We think of Jesus on that cross and how he, he, he turned to you and said, not my will, but yours be done. If there be another way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Lord, may that be the posture of our heart. Even as the culture has a different message, a message of self-aggrandizement and pride and arrogance and, and uh, we're so terrific and we're so special. Lord, may we remember there is a God in heaven who humbles the proud and who exalts the humble Teach us to that end, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you today. Make sure before you, uh, you leave, you get some coffee, some tea. Make sure to pick up your kids over in screen number 11. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday.